I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So we're going to start, and Patricia will read one or two poems, and then we'll go into a discussion on both books, and then we will turn to the audience for a few questions. So I'll leave it to Patricia. So should I read from this first? Do whatever you like. Okay, well I will. I'm going to go fucking hog wild on this. (laughs) (laughs) I think, okay, so I didn't know. I usually like to read a little bit from Come Queens. But I didn't know if you were like a cummy audience. <laughs> so as long as you can reassure me that you are, in fact, a very cum-centric audience, then I will go ahead with that, because that is my typical. Is that me? I think it's me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you just do that whole, it is like performance art, right? Or we're like Brian Eno or something. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I wonder if anything's different in this, like if they've made it British. <laughs> if they have, I'm going to be completely surprised. It's set in Scunthorpe. Yeah, did you do that? Yeah, we did. And you changed the spelling of, like, colour. Yeah. It's just the two things that you fixed. <laughs> the Come Queens of Hyatt Place. All year long, I have found myself as ubiquitously in hotel rooms as the Gideon Bible. I have stood in the light of hotel lamps and switched myself on and observed... I know all the soaps. I know all the shower heads. I know that the most popular hotel paintings are Beach After Everyone is Dead, a Beige Interpretation of the Rage of a Cat, Squares Going Wild, and A Rose's Period. One by one, I have pocketed the complimentary pens, and one by one, I have memorized the mottos on the stationery. Leave a trail of genius, the Marriott notepaper tells me, which is so optimistic it's actually touching. All year I've sat in hotel rooms and nothing has happened to write home about, which is the beauty of hotel rooms, really. Tonight, however, is different. Tonight is different because my mom believes there is cum on the hotel bed. (laughs) We are in Nashville and it is midnight and my mom believes there is cum on the hotel bed. We were looking forward to an innocent Christian visit in the city of rhinestones and cowboy boots and blonde hair and wholesomeness, and have instead found ourselves in the cum capital of America. (laughs) It happens this way. After driving all day, after getting lost on our way into town, after a steak dinner at a local roadhouse staffed entirely with aspiring country singers, we feel we have earned our rest. We check into our room at the Hyatt Place, and we wash our similar faces and change into our respective pajamas and yawn identical yawns. And then, and then, as it sometimes does, the whole world stops spinning on a single second. My mother turns back the blanket and gasps. From the look on her face, I can tell she has seen come. <laughs> she throws back her head and howls, and the sound chills me to the bone. It is the consciousness of a thousand cums crying out for a body. 
This is a Catholic's worst nightmare. Souls all over the bed. <laughs> Touch it, she commands. Touch it and tell me what that is. I silently beg the fourth commandment to release me just this once from its power. Is this how God wants me to honor my mother? By touching half of a stranger's baby on a hotel mattress? When Moses came down from the mountaintop, did he make the people touch it? I pause so long and get something pregnant. Mom, I'm not gonna touch cum. Just touch the cum and tell me if it's cum. Please, don't make me touch the cum. If I hadn't touched the cum, then you would never have been born. <laughs> One look at her tells me I have no choice. I reach out a trembling hand and suddenly she changes her mind. No, 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 wait. Before you touch it, get on your internet and Google, how long does come stay alive? <laughs> Mom, you're a Catholic. Isn't that one of the main things you're supposed to know? <laughs> Haven't you guys written entire books about how long cum lives? I can't remember. Look it up. We need to know. According to the internet, there are two possibilities. Sperm either die shortly after they leave the body, or else they live eternally, first on earth and then in heaven, banging themselves adoringly against the great gold egg of God's face. No one can decide. I can't handle this on my own, so I head over to Twitter and start sending out bulletins about my current situation as fast as I can type them. I start at the beginning and I waste no words. My mom believes there is cum on the hotel bed, and she's trying to make me touch it to verify that it is cum. No, mom, I will not. Immediately, one of my friends responds, touch the cum. <laughs> touch the cum with your mom. Pathetic fallacy is real. So just at that moment, a storm begins to beat itself against the window. Thunder bears its crack to us, and raindrops wiggle their long tails down the glass. Lightning shoots down the sky and illuminates us, and I see that my mother has undergone a change. Her eyes are open so wide it is impossible to imagine them ever closing. Her hair runs in wild locks away from her forehead. She looks like Edgar Allan Poe, haunted by cum, chased through the slick streets at night by cum. She shivers, as if someone <coughs> came on her grave. An unmistakable look begins to tiptoe across her face. I know that look. All of her children know it. We saw it bending over us tenderly when we were babies in our beds. Mom, no. We're not calling the police. <laughs> Can we call the police just a little bit? <laughs> Absolutely not. There is no special cum division. She sizes up the distance between herself and the phone and then somersaults across the bed. It's a nimble move, the move of a burglar on her way to steal a Pollock from MoMA. If the police won't help her, she's going to take matters into her own hands. She rises out of the somersault with cat-like grace, snatches up the phone, and starts to dial the front desk. But I see where this is going and wrestle it bodily away from her. I was once forced to switch hotel rooms at midnight because she saw a pube on the bathroom floor, and I swore to myself I would never let that happen again. Pubes aren't contagious, I told her. 
Then why do we all have them? She retorted. <laughs> I slam the phone back down and we stand staring at each other, panting like we're turned on. Craftily, she decides to switch tactics. Do you think I am overreacting? I consider my answer carefully. My mother's reactions are very often indistinguishable from demonic possession, but it isn't always wise to say so. She presses on. I guess a fun mother wouldn't care about all that comes. <laughs> I think a fun mother would care the most about it. <laughs> Bingo. That's right. Because you can't have fun if you know that somewhere in the world, someone is being disgusting. <laughs> Mom, it's late. Let's just sleep on the cum beds. Let's just sleep on these cummy, cummy beds. <laughs> Trisha, she says, beds are supposed to be comfy, not cummy. <laughs> oh my God, she really is my mother. There were times in the past when I had my doubts, but no longer. I have gazed into a puddle of genetic matter and seen my own DNA. We are more related than we've ever been. We are the cum queens of Hyatt Place. <laughs> All opposition between us dissolves and we find ourselves in perfect cooperation. We hide the spot with a fresh hotel towel and then lie awake for the next hour making cum puns to each other. How did we end up here? There was a moment when she first turned back that blanket, when we looked into each other's eyes and a blue current crackled between us, and our bodies made a sudden decision. We were going to say the word come to each other. It had to be done. The story had given us no choice. There was no turning back. Who did it, we wonder? She thinks it must have been a pervert who gets off on voyeurism of porno, but I think it was probably a businessman with a hotel fetish who shouted the word amenities as <laughs> A jizzness man, you mean, she says, and I feel like I just taught a baby how to read. The art on the walls has become more abstract. The squares are creaming themselves, and the roses are practically giving birth. I close my eyes and see bright splotches. After a while, I start to drift off, but I can feel my mother's eyes burning a hole into my left cheek. She's awake. She will be awake forever. Trisha, she whispers. I can't fall asleep. I'm afraid to turn around and face the car. <laughs> the next morning, she stomps down to the front desk and registers a complaint about the amount of semen in our room. The ideal amount of semen in a hotel room being none. The amount in our room qualifying as an actual wad. She has never felt more alive, you can tell. She's enjoying herself with all the immensity of a recently inseminated elephant. She inserts the phrase, come on, into the conversation whenever possible. And when the concierge attempts to make excuses, she tells her not to give her that load. The concierge's face is serene. So serene that I become suspicious. Perhaps she is the comer. A concierge sounds like a person who comes on beds. Maybe she got to be the concierge because she was able to come on more beds in one night than any other employee. I believe it, actually. I have never had a real job in my life, so this scenario seems plausible to me. 
In my secret heart, I believe this is how the president is elected. And I'm honestly going to end there because that is how we elected our president. And I'm not going to take that any further today. You'll have to read the book to find out what happens. We do get comms for the room, and we get a significant voucher for the next night. So don't worry too much about that. Um, so I suppose, I mean, how do you follow that? That's why um, I read that one. Because I don't even know if it's funny per se, but you say come so many times that after a while it has like a hypnotic quality and you just like lull people, you know, into mm. your, you get them in your web. Yeah. So, so before writing pre-study, mostly it was poetry and trolling yeah. people on Twitter. Yeah, um, a lot of that. How did the idea come about, not just in the idea of sitting down and going, yes, all right, a memoir, but uh, how did you decide to approach the form? And kind of, can you tell us a bit about the circumstances for those who haven't read it that led up to right. it? Right, yes. So basically, my husband and I had to move back in with my parents when we were about 30 due to a health crisis that we had had. And my father happens to be a married Catholic priest. So when we moved back in with my parents, we're essentially moving into a rectory, a, a presbytery, is that what, or a vicarage, that sort of thing. So it's basically, it's not a real house. It's, sort of, it's like God's house, and it's <laughs> way creepier than just a regular one. So I had to move back in there with my husband, and he was... I was used to it. I thought that that sort of thing was normal, but he was like, God, this is a freak show, absolutely. Yeah, so anyone hearing about my childhood, when I would explain that my father was a married Catholic priest, you know, sort of like growing up, they would say, you, you have to write a book about it someday. And I just thought, like, God, no, why would I do that? Why would I want to, like, revisit my childhood in that way? But when we were stuck with them for eight months, I mean, and you're just writing down everything that your parents say anyway, after a while it starts to become a book. And you do think more about the form later, mm. but it really began as a sort of a, a series of vignettes where I was just writing down everything my mother said. I mean, you'll, you'll see why if you read it. These are verbatim quotes, I promise you. Mm. Um, I mean, can you tell us a bit about your parents? I mean, there's one, uh, you mentioned that your mother had only ever had one subscription to a magazine, and that was Prevention Do you magazine. guys have that magazine? We don't, so you'll have to explain it. It but. sucks so bad. So it's like it's even smaller than a regular magazine. There's always like some yoga woman on the cover, but she's like 55 exactly, and like her hair is, you know, it's kind of silver, but she's having such a good time. She's healthier than anyone you've ever seen. And there are about six headlines all over the cover that are like, Blueberries, the new superfruit, prevent your cancer with a banana, you know, inject this into your veins to get better from the thing you're dying of. It's the most depressing magazine in the world. But she would read it and every month it was something else like, well, you have to eat a handful of almonds and then, you know, you're, you're never going to get colon cancer or something like that. And it's like, well, I'm glad it's that easy. <laughs> um, I mean, so can you tell us a bit about your parents and how they were so yes. different? Um, maybe yes. even exactly how you came to be the child of a married Catholic priest. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of complicated. So I do, you know, that's kind of inside baseball, so I describe that. But basically my father started out as an atheist, and then he had a conversion on a nuclear submarine, as you do, as we're all very well familiar with. And he became a Lutheran minister, and then he converted to Catholicism, and there's a special loophole, basically, where if you want to become a married Catholic priest, then you can do that. But yeah, my parents are total opposites. So in the book, I describe my mother in terms of her danger face, which I'll try to put on. It's like, it's like that. It's like, 
like her shoulders are up a little bit and her eyes are like this and she's also like seeming to reach out her hands to sort of rescue a baby that's fallen from a train you know so it's sort of like this it all, it's like a crouching stance and then her eyes are like that and before any statement I would show, she prefaces pretty much any statement with <gasps> like you know just a sharp intake of breath and then she'll be like Trisha there's come on the bed, basically. So every single statement, it pretty much takes that form. Whereas my father's much more easygoing, but ultimately, lots more insane. Yeah. So he doesn't ever wear trousers. He's just always in. You guys call them pants? The just the undies? Yeah. His knickers. He's just you know hanging out, and he's like spreading his legs, and he's got a big electric guitar, and he's like noodling a little riff on it, <laughs> and on the table in front of him, there's some sort of gun that he was cleaning before he lost interest in the gun, picked up the guitar, and started to noodle on that. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's pretty much my, t I don't know if, if you can add anything to that picture, but that's pretty much how it is, yeah. <laughs> um, and I suppose one thing that really struck me reading the book was um, how you describe like the various locations you lived in. So you moved around a lot as children, yeah. but also, I mean, we can talk later about how you met your partner and the parents' reaction to that. But um, you travelled a lot yourself when mm -hmm. you know, yeah. as a poet, all these little jobs, and then moved back in with your parents. So yeah. collectively, I've just lived everywhere. Mm. Yeah, lots but of cities. What struck me was that a lot of the places were the kind of areas that we would see as kind of forgotten, the kind of places yes. we're hearing about now post-Trump. Right. They, they keep calling it Trump land in my interviews, mm. and I guess that's technically true. I mean, my father voted for Donald Trump, so if you want to call that Trump land, then that's what it is. But they're basically, they're Rust Belt and sort of Midwest cities. It's not where the cool people are from. Like, if you're cool there, you, you move to New York or Chicago or Boston or L.A., sort of like, you, everyone flees, you know, mm. the center of the country and sort of moves to the coasts. So yeah, I was not from particularly advantageous or or cool places yeah they were they were desperately uncool in fact mm. yeah i don't what is the equivalent here uh we have lots of them and we would call it brexit land brexit land okay <laughs> all right like kent is it kent she's like the only one she's like i'll say it's kent i know everybody's thinking it it's kent <laughs> yeah so Okay, it's not, yeah. <laughs> East Midlands, post-industrial places, anywhere that there used to be a mine that there isn't now. But, yeah. Hereford? Okay. <gasps> Hi! It's nice to see you. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, how, how would you describe living in these places? How did it kind of affect you growing up? It was very depressing. We were talking earlier mm. downstairs about what it must be like to grow up in a place like London where you have access to these enormous, you know, like cultural benefits. And not just the museums and the art, but just the fact that you live in such a very old city that doesn't look quite so mm. depressing. You know, I'm, I'm sure in, in parts that's true, but in a lot of it there's, you know, very sort of like grand views wherever you look. So it's not just, you know, that I, I wasn't necessarily getting to go to excellent museums or excellent libraries mm. and that sort of thing. It's also that wherever you looked, it was sort of like a wasteland. For some reason, all of my father's parishes were facing out on some super brown river, like a way browner <laughs> river than you're used to. Like, I don't know what you think is going on with the Thames, but these, it's browner than that. And you're just looking at it, and then there's some sort of like industrial tank farm right next to it. And you look out your window every day, and you're like, I gotta get out of here. Like, you really do. There's just, the, there's not much um, scope for mm -hmm. imagination, I suppose Anne of Green Gables would say, in those places. <laughs> or maybe it makes you more imaginative. I don't mm. know. I don't know. Um. So can you talk a bit about how you met your partner and the Internet, your yeah. bitch. 
<laughs> and, your, and your parents' reaction to that? Because I mean, I love that passage because I mean, it, when you went to your parents and said, I'm, I'm meeting this man, I've met him on the internet, right. they acted as if you'd come in and said, I've met a sex offender and I'm, I'm going, going to prison to meet a murderer, him. mother, and I love him very much. I'm going to be very happy. No, yeah, so it really was like that. I was talking with an interviewer earlier and I said that there's a super good tweet by this guy named Daniel Kibblesmith that was like, 10 years ago, your parents were like, never trust anyone on the internet. In 2016, your parents are like, but freedomeagle.facebook says that Hillary invented AIDS. So we basically, we moved from a point where it was like, don't trust anyone on the internet and don't give out your credit card number, you can't buy anything, you can't do any of that sort of thing, to where we believe absolutely everything we read, like the, sort of the people who are older than 50 absolutely just believe these are all like true to life stories. But back then, yeah, if you met someone on the internet, he was a murderer. And if he's coming across the country in his car, what was it, a Mercury Mystique? Yeah, it wasn't a cool car. I don't know what you have here, but that's an uncool car. If he's driving across the country in that to come get you and basically drive you back to Colorado, you're in for some trouble. So my father did what any normal red-blooded American man would do, which is to first be hanging out in his underwear, sipping like Bailey's Irish cream. I was super tiny glass for some reason, like he's a little fairy or elf or something like that. And then it's just strap a gun on top of it and get in the car with us and drive to a Mexican restaurant where I guess if if he steps out of line, he will shoot him. And he will drop dead in the middle of the tortilla chips and salsa. I have no fucking idea. That's not what happened, but I, you, you had the idea that that was my father's fantasy of that first meeting. Yeah, that it, it would end with him shooting the man who's now my husband. So it's just your typical, you know, sort of like meet and greet with the parents. I'm sure that's the way it is for all of you as well. And your father decided to accept him when he gave him $20 to go to Arby's to buy beef and cheddars. Do you guys have Arby's here? Oh, it sucks so bad. It's a sort of beef. All beef and cheddars. Yeah, it's a beef that you would not recognize as being beef. It's a sort of shaved brown sheet that they pile on buns, and there's like a special sort of very viscous uh, orange goo that they pour on the top, and that's supposedly be cheddar. Yeah, so we were all going out of town, and of course my mother cooks for my father. He's not going to do that for himself. So he calls Jason into the room, and he's like, hey, Jay. He's the only person in the world who calls him Jay. He's like, get in here, Jay. And he hands him a $20 bill. He's like, I want you to go to Arby's and buy me as many beef and cheddars as that'll buy. Jason's Okay. <laughs> so he just took the money and he did it. How many beef and cheddars was it? I would say ten. It ultimately bought ten. <laughs> so that's a good deal. He ate instantly. He ate five. No, no. This is what we're dealing with. So you're gonna read this book and you're gonna think, oh, you know, she's like exaggerating a little bit here. No. There is so much that I did not tell you. <laughs> um so obviously you met uh not sex offender on yeah. the on the internet. Excellent work there. Not being a sex offender. Very good. Well done. Is that what's Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, we. So, I suppose I'm, I suppose we're used to stories of, of somebody leaving some kind of nuclear backwater and moving like a to New York to find on themselves. Their face and they find themselves mm. in New York. But you didn't do that. No, moved, we just bounced yeah. around. Here to there, we lived in Colorado for a while, and then in Kentucky. Have you guys heard of the Creationism Museum? 
Yeah. yeah, we were like right across the the river from that because I can never not live in a fucking river in my life. Yeah, so that was when they were just building it and they were like, you know, we're really doing some excellent work on these like statues of Methuselah and Moses and I'm just like, alright guys, he's going to be riding like a brontosaurus, etc. So we've lived in a lot of awful places and then we went up to um, the northeast where we lived in New Hampshire, which was a lot nicer than what we were used to and then Florida... And then Georgia, really just, a, it sounds like, a, it sounds insane once I say it all. Yeah, that's, it's really quite a few cities. So what made you decide to just bounce around, was it? Well, my awful husband, <laughs> as I'm going to tell you right now, he's actually, he was uh, born in Bangkok, Thailand, mm. and he was raised in South Korea. And do you know what a third culture kid is? Okay, yeah, so a lot of times, like, people who are ambassadors' kids mm. or people who are sort of, like, born and raised to a certain age, like, in other countries, when they get back here, they're like, America's not that great, you know, sort of, and they, they have no sense of, like, rootedness or home, really. So he's like, we're just going to move every year and a half, basically, which was fine with me, because what am I doing? I'm sitting there writing mm. poetry. I'm going to be like, no, I have, to, I have to be in Kentucky to do this, okay? <laughs> you need to be close to those statues of Methuselah. <laughs> um, so... I mean, can you tell the audience what it was that led for you to, you know, moving back home in the end? Yes. Okay, so my husband, who always had, had like, perfect vision that I was very jealous of, started to get a little bit foggy. It turned out that he had developed, for reasons we know not, um, advanced cataracts, and he had to get total lens replacements, which in America, I don't know if you've heard anything about our healthcare system, but it's not super great. So we basically were going to have to pay something like $10,000 out of pocket before the surgery in order to even have it done. And that was after the small amount your insurance would cover. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, that, that's just what we were going to have to pay. So obviously we couldn't do that, you know, like poet over here. So we raised money on the internet, but, I mean, afterwards you still, like, you miss work and things like that, and it's just very difficult to adjust in those sort of situations. So he... And the first surgery didn't yeah, work. Yes, yes, it was, it, was, it was a nightmare, actually. So I go into all that, but it's, it's a little bit, you know... But ultimately, yeah, so we were just flat broke. Mm. And this has happened, as I was writing this, I was starting to hear from more and more people that had done the same thing. Like, it, it seems to be a little bit more common now because we've completely fucked the economy <laughs> and everything's going to hell. Mm. Like, this is a more common experience, I think, than you would think. It's, you know, not everyone's dad is a priest. <laughs> and a tiny pair of underwear with a gun strapped to its waist <laughs> but it, it did seem to be that part of it was resonant that like a lot of people said well yeah you know mm. a lot of people are having to do this I mean I think we have we have it a lot in the UK here but it's mostly kind of people <laughs> who move back home to try and save up money for their first home yeah. but it's not because we went to the doctor but had to pay two grand right. because we had flu. Exactly. But, but like our home price is crazy. Mm, yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, like people in our position in the States, like we're not buying houses. Mm. It seems like the farthest fetched thing. And then you think about our parents and it's like, well, you know, my dad was a shoe salesman and like we bought this home somehow. And you're like, what is this world that you came from? Where that was possible, you know? Like, how does that work? Mm. So you return home. Mm. I mean, how do you immediately feel about having to do that? And then how does it develop after that? Uh, I probably felt a lot worse about it than he did because yeah. I knew what it was like. So partially, what's going on in my home just immediately is a, a kind of sensory onslaught where there is a, a constant wall of electric guitar music that is louder than anything you can possibly imagine or that you've ever heard in your life. And that's happening all the time. And when he's not playing the guitar, he's uh, playing some sort of uh, music, a, a, you know, general... Do you guys know who Joe Bonamassa is? 
Oh, you do. Well, you're the, <laughs> the rest of you don't look him up, okay? So he's basically one of these people who like fucks a guitar into little spaghetti bits with his fingers, and he's like, <laughs> and they think that that's the best kind of thing. Am I insulting him? Is this a huge? Is that what it is? That's what it is, basically. And he's like, Argh. and you can tell he feels really cool about it, and he, he thinks it's the blues, but it definitely isn't the blues. So when you're not hearing him play, you're hearing something like Giovanna Massa. My mother is, you know, screaming about various imperilments, catastrophes, uh, cancers that people, you know, have been found to have, that sort of thing. Occasionally, my sister will bring her, like, you know, a dozen children. She actually uh, is on her way to having nine, so she is... Uh, She's going to be having another one, yeah. And in the book, I do talk about that she has so many that she had to get a special rap entourage van in order to drive them all around because regular cars would not fit the number of children that she has. So she drives around a black van. It's totally black, and it says thegrindup.com. <laughs> and it was confiscated from the grindup, and then it was sold to her at a police auction. I don't know what he did, but he did end up in the slammer. So he's to the grind up. We don't know. I hope that he's okay. But we've got his van now. So. Yeah. Where was I? Oh yes. So it was sort of um, the most chaotic thing you can you can even really think of. Mm. Yeah. And I'm a person who likes a lot of quiet. Really. I'm a you know I'm I'm a person who likes to have almost total silence and just like be sitting there thinking about a tree while in a totally still position, not having to move at all. So it was very um, distressing mm. for me. And it's also true that when you go back home, I mean, like if you just go home for like the holidays or something, you become a, a child again. <laughs> you know, you're subject to the old power dynamics of your home, all the feelings you had back then. It's like you're, you feel yourself like sort of shrink in stature, actually. Like you can feel it happen. Mm. Um, what about the relationship with your siblings? I mean... Can you tell us a bit about that? And I mean, you, you, you've got one sister who has nine children, etc. You've all taken slightly different paths, etc. Um, I mean, do you think do you think it would have been different if any of you had managed to go to college? You mentioned in the book that you, one of us, yeah, one of us got there, or one of us managed to graduate. Mm. And so two of I, you were taken aside by your father at the last minute, and yes, and that was me and my older sister. My older sister is the mm. one uh, who has the numerous children. She's also the most religious. I would say that the experience that my older sister and I had ooh, I didn't touch that, um, was much more um, was much more intense mm. than what you know. So it's sort of true for the older kids that they really get like the fullest force of the parents' insanity, whatever that particular <laughs> insanity happens to be. And so we really got that, and then it kind of calmed down after that. So there are five of us. So I would say like super religious person, mm. like heretic writer. That's me. Uh, dude who was in the military, basically. Um, he was also not, he was mm -hmm. told by my father, actually, he was not cut out uh, to go to college. And he encouraged him to go into the military during wartime. So if that, if that illustrates something about his personality as well, then please <laughs> allow it to. Because, it, yeah, it's weird. And then pharmacist, and she looked at the 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 older three of us and said, well, holy shit, I have to do something clearly to get out of here. So I better, you know, do this like uh, off my own bat pretty much. And then my younger brother, Daniel, who's um, sort of like a Redditor. I describe him as being a Redditor. Um, he's like a gamer. He actually lives with my parents now for like similar sort of financial reasons. And he read the book and he's like, holy shit, I didn't think anyone could describe the way it was, but this is really how it feels. And I was like, 
it helps to be doing something creative almost mm. like to deal with it and that was really the way it was begun so it's like you just you have to you just you're put back into the position of the observer or there's nothing you can do but observe mm. i mean um one thing that really struck me when i read this was that, i mean i had like a very chaotic upbringing as well mm. and it just reminded me of all the times when I think if you just talk about your childhood to people, you're constantly worried that the stories that you're telling are, you know, they're, they're completely real. But you suddenly think, God, my childhood was insane. Will yeah. anybody actually believe this? Right, right. But have you had a lot of reaction from people about similar sort of things? Or? Yes, yes. Oh, do you mean like telling me their own particular stories? Yes. Yeah. No, not yet, because like mm. not as many people are reading it. But I have heard from like similar sort of people who have religious backgrounds in the mm. States. People who have similar like pro-life. I don't know what is the. Is there like a pro-life movement over here yeah. that is active? What's um, is it anything like my description, or is it? Yeah. Well, actually, a lot of people from America have been moving over to the UK to kind of bolster it and bring in money with them as well. So. And and they're bringing that other thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Not you know, but the particular way mm. that it's ex expressed, I would say, in America is very psycho. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I think I think a lot of the time. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that kind of because families are very insular, people often yeah. talk about experiences um, that kind of are outside the norm. Whereas yeah. I've got kind of more kind of middle class family, you know, friends who had normal but normal childhoods, and they think that theirs are really right. outlandish. But it's also true that like every interviewer I've talked to has said mm. something about their family, and I'm like, wow, that does sound crazy. Like everyone <laughs> has some sort of crazy thing. Like this lady's like, you know, well, my 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 dad like worked at a restaurant, and he was like having an affair with another person, and mm. then like my mom also worked in the restaurant. And I'm like, that's crazy. That to me, like you know, that's like a very unusual circumstance. That so we all. Have have our own thing maybe we mm. can't imagine you know this sort of thing but it as, as you're writing it you do start to get a cumulative sense of like this is not great this is like <laughs> this is worse than I thought it was you know or mm. seeing it all collected in one place maybe has a sort of like stunning oh effect, my god right yeah. like and you go through it and you're like wow all of this in the same 350 mm. pages you know or like one thing after another is just one crazy thing after another and I would say a reaction I've had too from people is that you know they they think that I'm exaggerating. And again, it's it's, it's a completely underplayed. I would say, mm. yeah, I really tone that shit down. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you were writing, how much, how worried were you about the about how your family and kind of friends would feel, etc., and how much um, did you feel you had to kind of hold back, or did you? Or were you just quite upfront about it? No, no, and I held back a great deal. But I was thinking more in terms of you, you have to really figure out which parts of the story are are yours mm. to get to talk about. So, you know, when you're in like a congregation and you know the secrets of your father's parishioners, I can't put all those things in the book. Obviously that would be really unethical. So as opposed to thinking so much, I didn't think as much about my dad. I thought about my mom and I thought about my brothers and sisters about mm. what was okay to put in regarding them. My dad, I figured, was fair game. And I was nice to him anyway. Just trust me. I was totally nice to him. <laughs> but when it came to other things that really like pointed to the, the climate or the atmosphere of our home that had happened to other people, I worried much more about talking about that sort of thing. Mm. Like, you know, there's a particular story of like a handyman yeah. who works for the church and it's like... Do you talk about this? Because it really says something. In America, you know, we believe that like charity should all be done by churches, pretty much. That there shouldn't mm. be social services at all, pretty much. And my point in a chapter like that is to say, I mean, look what happens when we leave it to the churches. The hierarchies are completely replicated. You know, even in these so-called holy spaces. Mm. Um, 
I mean, how did how did the approach differ from poetry as well? I mean, can you talk a bit more about the kind of general sort of theme of the poetry you do, etc. For people yeah, who have read it. Yeah, I saw like animal puberty, mm. um, like animals, like things <laughs> turning into other things. It's very freewheeling. So. With poetry, I don't really have to worry about you know what I'm putting in. I'm not putting in a whole lot of like facts or yeah. things about my life. I would say there's 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 not that much. But poetry to me is just like an open field. You do mm. just what you want where poetry is concerned. But when it comes to a book like this, I'm not of the school of mind that thinks that that everything goes in. Mm. No, it's it's very different for me. No. I mean, one, I think the thing that comes out most is exact. Uh, just how much affection you have for the family, etc. Yeah. I mean, when you were writing it, did you? I mean, to me, as someone who hadn't met you till today, it becomes kind of clear where certain aspects of your personality come from, etc. Sure. Did you? Did you see it as a kind of exploration of yourself rather than just the family, or? Yeah, absolutely. But I think also that writing a book like this is a real exercise in empathy. Mm. And if you're carrying empathy to its its furthest limit, I think it becomes affection. Maybe yeah. just writing about anyone. So a lot of the writing we feel like really, you know, that resonates with us, that's about other people, it becomes affectionate or it becomes mm. tender in the end. Because you have to consider people, you know, almost with a sort of tenderness. You want to especially do so if it's your own family, but somehow that's a more difficult thing than doing it with strangers sometimes. Mm. Um, shall we, do you want to read a poem sure. before we go into, or you can read two, before we go into questions? And <laughs> I won't read two. <coughs> Let's see. Should I read an Animorphs poem? Yes, I do Let's like the Animorphs do one. It. So you guys have the Animorphs, you, right? you know, You know who Animorphs are. Are you all completely obsessed? Just tell me yes. You love the Animorphs. <laughs> you love to change the animals. Now, I didn't read these growing up because I was like a little bit old. And also, I was a snob about books. Like, I believe that you were supposed to be working your way through like the hundred greatest classics of the Western world, which is like so sad when you think about this 11 year old like sweating over Bleak House or something like that. I was like, just read an Animorphs book, you know? <laughs> An Animorph enters the doggy dog world. Discover the power at age 11. Discover all powers at age 11. A kitten head struggles out of your face, and the kitten head mews, Milk? You gasp with its mouth, and it slurps itself back. Yet the mew for milk remains. You drink it. You think, I am an anamorph. Your sight and your hearing increase, like wheat and the wind and the wheat. Well, you've never seen any wheat, but it sounds good to you and your new trembling ears. Blue sky increases above the wheat, and you know what it's like to grow a, well, a hawk's is between two legs, but much higher. Halfway to any animal is where you like to be. Get halfway there and have just the instinct, the instinct that someone's approaching. Stripes begin to form, are always a surprise. You look down and you move your head left to right, and then the meaning comes. English get worse, but not much in your muzzle. English get worse, but not much in your mouth. You walk to school and sit next to a girl who was born with a tail, and you copy off her. You rub your temples when they ache, rub any of your body when it aches. You seem to be only a series of places where animal parts could emerge. Soon you will be a teenager, and soon you will be so greasy, and how you can hardly wait because its grease makes the animal graceful, 
you go. You go to the petting zoo with your class and timidly reach in a hand. Turn to a donkey and finally feel your lashes are long enough. Turn to a horse and finally feel that your eyes are so meltingly human. Walk home on your own through the fields and the fields and the increase of wheat and the wind in it. And think of the life that stretches before you. Work your way through all the animals and come to the end of them. And what? And turn to crickets and make no noise? One tear struggles out of your face, but no, that's not a tear. I fucking eat crickets, your kitten has says. I fucking eat silence of crickets for fun. I got life after life in a name like Baby. Every time I try to cry a tear, a new kitten head grows out of me. And oh, how you are lifted then. The kitten head of you in the high hawk hold. Um, we'll now move to questions, yeah, and we have a roping mic at the back. Ooh, so when I when I, when I choose you, you need to wait for the microphone. I have some good ones. Have Who would like to ask a question? Please raise your hand to show that you would. This person oh, is it here. Not, can I call on? I'm a teacher. I call on you. Thank you. Um, so as you, that was wonderful. Um, as you can tell, I'm American uh, from my voice, probably. I grew up in a city that was similar to yeah. I, Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Um, Baltimore has its own thing. Oh, yeah, it does. Totally, okay. Um, and my mother's from St. Louis, and so I you know, oh. place it right. Okay, okay. So, but I, growing up there, I, I loved it, but I, I developed most of my interests on the Internet. I spent a lot of time yes. sort of looking at, at various people, I mean, in, in really embarrassing places like Tumblr and, you know, Okay, so you're Tumblr. a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, if um, I had Tumblr, I don't know what, I'd be one of those people who permanently wears a tail. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for being honest. <laughs> but my, my you question can't handle was, the truth. Um, my question really was that you seem to have done that in a similar way, yeah. I'll be a little bit later with Twitter, uh, with your, yeah. your sort of, I think that's the way that a lot of people discovered you and maybe the way that you, you know, yeah. first got out to the outside world right. to some extent. Yeah, but that ultimately came very late. Yeah, okay. I, I was raised with the really shitty websites where it was like there was like a little dancing, like fairy <laughs> in the background. They were just absolutely awful. There was like a wall of text and all the links were broken. There'd be one like picture that was sized wrong. It was just like a really stretched. That's what I grew up with. Yeah, so that was my, my formative sensibility. But yeah, it is true that I sort of take comments on Twitter. Yeah, and I, I think, so my question there is, what, what, did that, what did that change about the way that you, not just about the way that you write, but about sort of the way that you viewed the world once you had that sort of, or once, once you started to look at a sort of internet of other people mm -hmm. out there, uh, and, and being able to escape the small towns that you were living in. Yeah. So it was interesting because I think it came a little bit late for it to be truly like life-changing in the way that it was like, whoa, you know, I suddenly I, I've, I've opened onto a broader view. But it was interesting because I was really, as far as Twitter goes, I was like a late adopter. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really get on it till 2011 or something mm -hmm. like that. And it was just because my husband got me a smartphone. He's like, do you want me to put Twitter on it? And I was like, whatever. And then I was like, <laughs> you know, like doing whatever. So I don't know that like that aspect of it 
was really where I felt like I came out in, into the field of freedom. Like that was earlier for me. But it is the place where I became known. And so it, it is true probably that it, it somewhat changed the way I wrote. Um, I think that the second book particularly was sort of uh, more freewheeling. And I had been working a lot with humor on Twitter. And I was thinking, you know, what if I, what if I tried to integrate that? Because my first book was much more serious. And I thought, what if I tried to integrate some of that like very freewheeling, like anything goes sensibility, like into the poems? And so that was that was really um, sort of how the second book happened. Yeah, so that was a big deal. Has your dad read your book? No, he hasn't. Actually, an interviewer asked me that earlier, and I was like, that's the twenty-four thousand dollar question. That's not what it is. It's sixty-four thousand. Is that not a thing? Okay, it's thank you, Baltimore. Yes. We don't have money in Britain. 64,000. She's like, it's the $1 million question. I'm like, well, that's the most obvious number. Try to choose something a little bit edgier than a million. But yeah, so everyone's asking that. No, he has not. And he never, ever will. As I say in the book, he will not read any book that is not either about Augustine or submarine. So it's like two ends of the spectrum, and there's only a tiny little bit about Augustine and just a little bit about submarines. Actually, come to think of it, this is a book about submarines. Yeah. This is fair game. My dad um, might read this book. <laughs> What was the film he was watching on the submarine? The Exorcist Girl. Oh, yeah. so... Your mother sucks cocks in hell, right? So... That one. While everybody's thinking of the questions that they're going to ask before I pick on them, can you, can you just tell us a little bit about the Chinese spent on the submarine watching yeah. The Exorcist forever? So I guess if they would screen movies for these, like, hot, sweaty guys who are wearing these, like... You've seen, like, this sort of 70s, like, sailor outfits. It's all very gay. They're, like, wool. They're sitting together. They're, you know... They're it's just absolutely awful and they would have one movie that they would screen for them and I think that on the course of one particular patrol they watched The Exorcist like plus 70 plus times 70 plus have you seen The Exorcist? That is the scariest movie in the world okay if I watched that movie 70 plus times under the sea I would be a priest right now too like for sure right it makes total sense when you think about it yeah I'm sorry was anyone else totally fucked up by that film? I was watched it when I was eight years old, which was the dumbest thing in the world. Okay, so maybe it was the same week. Different. Oh my god! Does anyone remember the X Files episode where the guy stretches and goes through vents to eat yeah. people's livers? Yeah. My cousin, I have a story about my cousin the made me watch that on the same night yeah. I watched The Exorcist, and then I went to sleep, and there was a vent next to my head in the bed. <laughs> So that scared you more. Yeah, and that's okay. why I'm a Catholic priest. Right. <laughs> well done. Now, so I, <laughs> I'm doing a thing where I watch um, the X Files at the rate of one episode every year and a half because they scare me so much that that is the most I can do. So after about a year and a half passes, then I can, I'm on, I'm on, I'm soon to watch the third. So I'm, I'm getting along quite well with the X Files. Yeah. Isn't there? Is there a toilet thing? Should I skip the one where something comes out of the toilet? Oh my god, I don't think I've seen that one. Well. I saw the one where everyone was inbred. That was really scary. That one was scary? Yeah, that that's a really... American. It's called Home. Yeah. Very American. Oh, Home is supposed to be like yeah. one of the scariest ones. Do we have another question? I, yeah. I, and there's one back there as well. Yeah. Um, what about the genes? <laughs> oh my god. And also, wait, I have another question, because that can't be my question. No, you can ask um, the genes. I'm going to see... I almost want to make everyone stand. Everyone stand up. <laughs> everyone stand up. Uh, I'm going to check your jeans, y'all. No, no one has them. Actually, you're close. 
but I don't know if it's quite the same. <laughs> That's about the length. All right, so you're all free. You can sit down again. So, yeah, so I just went to New York, and everyone's jeans are this absolutely, like, shockingly heinous length. It's totally new that I haven't seen. It's, like, almost like a capri, but it's, like, an early 90s, like, oh Levi's, God, yes. and it's, like, you know, hanging out. But, and they're sort of, they're not exactly cut off, but they're kind of frayed. So it'd be, like, uh, like two inches shorter than <laughs> yeah, that. Right. And, it's, and I'm looking at everyone, and these are all cool people because it was, like, a photo shoot, and I'm, like, I am never doing that shit. I just got used to the skinny jeans that make your legs these awful sausages. And, you know, I'm from English people, too. We don't naturally wear, like, a sausage thing, like, on our butt. Or maybe we do because of the bangers. <laughs> but it took me actually a very long time to adopt like the sausage pant and I'm not ready to move on yet. I'm not sure. ready to move on to the heinous new length. But thank you for remembering. It actually uh, took me a second. I was I like, know. what about What's, the jeans? Did you have another? Can you? Yeah, so my serious not gene related question yeah. was um, since you started writing poetry, which I didn't know is when, maybe you were a child. But yeah, okay, so. All right, so that's a lot. I was going to say, does it feel like a lot has changed since you started writing poetry? Because I feel like in the last, say, like five years, or even maybe ten years, I don't know, that in terms of the prominence and visibility of kind of women yeah. poets, particularly yeah. women of colour yeah, in the US yeah, yeah. in particular, that there's just been this real explosion. I don't know how much is internet-related or kind of world-related. Yeah, I think but a lot it, of it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, does it feel like it, this is a big time for it women? It does poetry? absolutely seem like a like a big cultural moment. Yeah, um, and they're also. So I, I think of this sort of thing as maybe beginning with the the rise of the indies. That was sort of you know like a, maybe like 15 years ago that yeah. sort of thing. So all of these smaller presses sort of came to the fore, and they were releasing things that got a lot of attention. And then there started to be things like Facebook and Twitter. And that was a, there was a real like democratization of expression, because if you wrote something good and people passed it around, like you were you sort of like spread in a thin layer like over the face of the globe and you would just never had that before you partly just didn't even have like access i didn't have access to new poetry when i was young i was like reading you know wallace stevens from the local barnes and noble so we have something now where people who otherwise would not necessarily have access to new poetry can read it yeah. on the internet and they can read the things that like and that they like and that speak more to them and to their experience. Yeah. So I think that that's going to continue happening probably for a while and I think that the internet has just played like a huge part in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm an atheist but I was raised by Catholic parents yeah. and I feel like that you know, probably was responsible for Lots many of my issues. <laughs> is uh, you know, kind of a real. My parents are lovely people, but it's a real force for bad in the world. In general, be, in my yeah. opinion, I, I wondered if you have strong opinions about Catholicism, about being raised as a child, or in general about Catholicism. Yeah, I sure do, and you know. I really think that it was bullshit that we got so down on Sinead for ripping up that picture of the Pope. She was right. I'm sorry, she was right. And like they've they've never they've never showed that again. Like, you know, on network TV, they've never played that moment and she's like this you know, persona non grata because of it. And it's like, that's completely uncool. She was absolutely right. She was 100% right. And so I'm writing this book and I'm like, well, I'm not naturally a person who rips up a picture of the Pope, but how can I sort of do it in book form? Like I'm not, I would say I don't naturally tend toward polemic, but I did in, in a sense, like it really felt like if you write a book about the Catholic Church and you don't like look at those issues where we have been, we have been absolutely an institutional force for evil in the world. We have. 
over periods of centuries. Absolutely, I don't think anyone could, we can't deny that. I mean, you can't look at the actual facts and, and say that, that, <laughs> that we've always been this, you know, sort of like positive, beautiful institution. It's just not true. So when I'm writing the book, I'm more familiar with the American side, but obviously there's a lot in Ireland as well that, you know, you Big thing recently, you know, you know about the, um, yes, the, 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 the babies, the babies uh, at the yeah. moment. Which is just absolutely... But everyone just closes ranks around it. Right, and, and I write about this. There is mm. this natural human instinct to, to close around and, and protect the powerful. So I could only write, I wanted to write to the very sort of specific things that I experienced growing up where you'd be like friends with a priest and it turned out that like that priest mm. was raping people the whole time. And it's just like, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? You know, how do you, how, how do you go through that sort of thing like when you're a teenager and, and you know personally like some of the victims of these people, like how are you to come out of that and, and still be a Catholic in the same way that you were when you were a child? It's not possible. So if you make your way to a sort of Catholicism after you go through that uh, kind of enlightenment, it's very different. It's one that has to be extremely tempered by that understanding and to think like, how can the church move forward? Is there a possibility for a new Catholic left in the modern era? Is there a possibility for a socialist Catholic left? You know, can we, can we take the four on, on those sorts of conversations? Because yeah. I think that there is a place for that, absolutely, in the, in the current cultural moment. But writing the book, it felt like you, at, at times you just wanted to burn it all down. Mm -hmm. But that's not the sort of writer that I really am. So it was how can I treat it in a way that is still the way I write and still my voice, but that still lays all these things bare. You can't write a book about the Catholic Church and have it be like this glowing Yelp review where it's like, five stars, the noodles came very quickly and the service was wonderful. It's not, that's not our experience. That's not the way the Catholic Church is in the world. Yeah, so that was that was honest. That was foremost on my mind as I was writing it. How do I talk about that? Has Claire got the genes? Uh, Not quite. No, because they're cups. They're okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I read the proposal for this book a couple of years ago because uh, I work in publishing, and it was sorry. Uh, it was one of. The, I wanted to publish it, but they, my was boss it was, terrible? No, it was it was the best proposal I've ever read. Um, Thank you. It was, and I've been waiting for this book ever since. Um, but the, in in the proposal, you talked about the curate who was staying with you, the Italian curate, and I. Been wondering for about three years. Has he gone back to Italy and become a priest? What What's he doing now? He he's, is he's... a priest now. Yes, and I keep trying to get in contact with him. And be like, "What's up, dude? Hang out with me. Like, come to my reading." Because I hope that in the book, I hope that I treated him again as affectionately as I felt. Because he was a really funny dude. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to use his name. I'm going to change some sort of identifying details, not the Italian stuff, because you got to keep that in there. And his like sensuality, you know, his grapiness, I would describe. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so he did become a priest, and he was working for a while in the Kansas City Diocese, and then I think he, he moved somewhere else, but yes, he's, I'm sure that he's as sexy as ever, <laughs> wanting to feed girls ham, you'll find out later, but that's what he really wants to do. Absolutely wonderful man. <laughs> and I will say, I will say, the reason that I particularly loved him was that he really cared about the poor and so it's a, a lot of times with these guys, there's a sense that they really just want to put on fancy clothes and like sift gold through their fingers, you know? <laughs> but with this dude, I was like, he cares about the poor. I can work with that. That's a person, you know, that I could love. That, you know. Um, you said you don't um, tend towards a polemic. Yeah. But it seems to me like you don't tend toward um, avoidance no. either. Well, um, 
And I read your um, Trump piece in The New Republic, and I loved it. And I wondered if you had more um, political writing up your, up your sleeve. Now, okay, so this is such an interesting question, because obviously I wrote that piece not believing that he would win, and then he won, and I was like, I'm going to go to a gulag, right? I said some very bad <laughs> shit about this skin. Like, I really insulted that guy. I went to town on him. Um, but the, the New Republic, that was conceived as a project where people who didn't typically write about political things uh, were contacted, and they were like, we're having poets and novelists, you know, sort of like travel around to all of these um, rallies for the different candidates. They wanted to assign me Carly Fiorina, for Catholic and woman reasons, but I was like, hell fucking no. I was like, I'm gonna write the greatest profile of Donald Trump that anyone has ever seen in their life, and I'm writing it about the main guy, and I'm like, oh shit, like hopefully that didn't have something to do with him winning, you know? <laughs> but I, it's not natural for me to write uh, about politics, I would say. I grew up in a home, I'm sure some of you have experienced this, where like politics was sort of like a stage for male anger. Mm. It was sort of just a man striding across it, screaming about Hillary Clinton all the time. So mm. where, where politics was concerned for a long time, I was, I just, I avoided it. Because it was, honestly, it caused like feelings of, of fight or flight in my body where I just wanted to leave the room, basically, when Fox News came on. But I did that piece, and it was really so interesting. And you do have the sense that it was a different perspective, maybe just because I was an idiot about some things, but also because you're going into a space, and if you're not familiar with it, if not familiar with like political rallies, you can really sort of describe the physical energy there and like the interactions between bodies, which is always my subject and always my interest, in a way I think that is, is very fresh. So I haven't I haven't thought about it, but maybe I will. And honestly, in the, in the current era, like maybe we have a sort of duty, even as people who would not typically write about politics, maybe people like me should get in there and like do our part. I did write a poem about wanting to like pinch him and you know like pull out the hair of various members of his you know administration, things like that. But it, it's a possibility in the future that I would do that. And thank you. That was, that was very sweet. Um, I was just curious about whether you find the internet now as enjoyable place as enjoyable place to spend time I know exactly what you're asking yeah. me and it is not as good as once it was yeah. no <laughs> i feel like i just opened twitter and i feel like i took two handfuls of garbage and just sort of like ground them into my eyes for 15 minutes it's the same experience but at the same time I also feel that if I'm offline for, you know, 15 hours that I miss mm. sort of something so crucial like developments are moving so quickly and maybe that maybe they're not actually but it feels as if they are that it's almost like you can't look away. But no, it's it's no longer like the the space for just like a fun time. We're all going to like, you know, uh, talk about McDonald's and you know just like make fun of of Ronald McDonald or I I don't even remember what we used to do. That's not it. But it's something like that. Oh wait, wait. Can you guys tell me what is Cheeky Nando's? So, unfortunately, you like the reason that happened is because we can't tell you. We're not. I will, I, I, I will take you aside and I will tell you. You'll tell me later. All but, right. But we. But as you, it's very, very. You know, I see. Sensitive. It's, it's a very touchy subject. Yeah. All right. It's actually almost a sort of a cult. Do I have to be like initiated into the cult of Cheeky Nando's? And I get like some sort of robe that has like chicken grease on it. But you cannot tell anyone. It's chicken, right? <laughs> But it's, it's more than chicken. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think I'll ever understand. I was actually walking here with my publicist, and I'm like, should I ask him about cheeky? <laughs> can even be explained to an American. We can try. You can try. All right. I appreciate your willingness. 
And your secrecy. So really hold that close to your vest. When a secret is as sacred as cheeky Nando's, I appreciate it. The sound you know. system explodes, the walls fall in. You did that the second time. What, when was the first time? It was also after I made some sort of... It's very angry at me. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. At this point, I'm terrified of God. Yeah, I know. Um, oh, God is definitely here yeah. right now. He's like, what's up, guys? Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>